Jesus, thank you for the goodness of your word uh, that leads us to be changed, that leads us to be a transformed people, but not, not just a, a thing for changing us, but Lord, primarily a thing for showing us the goodness of our Saviour. Spirit of God, we ask that you would do that for us this morning. That through my words, you would reveal the goodness of the Saviour to us. And in the seeing of Jesus, we would be brought to higher glory than ever before. That we would be made to be more like him. We pray it in his name. Amen. So, uh, imagine if you will, that you got up this morning, right? Uh, now, now... We've probably all done this for various different reasons. We've got up and we've come to church this morning. Uh, I can say that certainly because you're here. But uh, you got up and you came in here to church and, and you found that instead of our usual crowd of somewhere between 30 and 50 people at Gospel Church, instead, the whole York Peninsula had, had turned out, you know, including the Copper Triangle, let's go, okay? Just, just, just for, for nice round numbers' sake. Uh, you know, the streets of Middleton filled. 80k sign on the uh, Maitland Road through to the Way Bridge on the way to Yorktown, uh, if you will. Uh, so so, so something, something in the vicinity of 25,000 people. We're not a densely populated area, York Peninsula. Um, but, but like, just to come to Gospel Church, we'd need a new PA system, by the by. But, uh, and we only just got a new PA system, so yeah, that'd be heartbreaking. But... Um, yeah, yeah, if, 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 if 25,000 people showed up, how crazy would that be? Wouldn't, wouldn't that, like, 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 I don't know, I think some of us might even be tempted to go home and it'd be a bit overwhelming, you know? Um, <laughs> be awkward if I did. Uh, but, but there's this interesting rhythm in our passage today. Uh, and, and really, not just in the passage today, but in the ministry of Jesus that we're seeing, uh, that, that is really clearly worked out in this passage today. Uh, it's not the main point of it, but it's a good place to start. Uh, there's this immense number of people who come to hear him and to see him. See him. In fact, there's an increasingly immense number of people coming along to hear what Jesus has to say and to see what he has to do. At the start of our passage today, Luke 11:29. I'm going to get it open because I'd be a hypocrite otherwise. Um, Luke 11:29. We read, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say. Uh, now, we won't read what he said just yet, um, but, but we get this idea that there are already crowds, a fair number of people, and they're increasing. There's lots of people coming along to hear Jesus. And, and then when we get to the end of our passage, we get to Luke 12, verse 1, uh, we, we really seem to find things at, a, at a, a high point, like things have ramped up a lot. We read, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. Now, I'd, I've never been to any massive concerts, so I can barely imagine what that looks like, right? Like, but that's a, that's a big crowd. In fact, the word there, many thousands, it's a, it's a Greek word originally, it's muriadon, um, we get, a, get the word myriad, from it, uh, but it's, it's often translated in the Bible, uh, rightly, as 10,000, or, or in this case, because it's a plural, tens of thousands of people. So, so something like that picture of the whole York Peninsula packing into Middleton, right? And remember, this is in a day where the population of the largest city in the nation of Judea was about 600,000, we get from an, an ancient historian. You know, so less than half the size of 
Brisbane, less than an eighth of the size of Sydney, the biggest city in their whole nation. And that's not even where they are right now. They're in the sticks. They're moving through the countryside on their way to Jerusalem. So imagine that. Jesus is amassing uh, a huge following, a huge uh, number of people were interested in what he had to say and his teaching and his ministry. It's kind of the picture we're getting here. I mean, think about it. You know, Jesus, Jesus must have been saying some pretty cool stuff, right? Like some pretty moving stuff, some pretty agreeable stuff, you would think, uh, in order to draw such a crowd, right? But, you know, I'm getting a doubtful sound from Anita in the front row here. Um, and she's right. Actually, what we'll see today... <laughs> Yet again, is the Jesus who, uh, who flies on the face, in the face of everything we might expect. The, the raw, the actually quite offensive at times, Jesus in the Bible today. Uh, the first words he speaks here, they're so, they're such a crowd pleaser, right? Listen to this. This generation is an evil generation. Whew. Preach it. That's, it's a bit crazy, right, for that to be your opening line to the big crowd. Uh, the, the Jesus who speaks the truth is who we get here today. The Jesus who speaks the truth that he knows that we need to know, rather than the comforting lie that we might want to know, and who entrusts the numbers to his father. In fact, Jesus is so unafraid to share the message that he shares. It, the reason is because he knows that the greatest need of every person is him. And that's, that's what we get in this passage. Jesus confronts us with our need for him and with the good truth of what happens when he is in our lives. You know, and then, and then, you know, we get, we actually get two parts of the passage. That's kind of part one. And then the second part is kind of, we move from the positive of what it's like to have Jesus and what it's like to be changed by him to the negative, the alternative, what it's like to try to go it alone without Jesus. So read with, with me. We're in, we're in Luke 11, verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. What Jesus is saying here uh, responds to something we saw a little bit earlier on, if you've been following along with us. Uh, uh, he, there were demands for a sign back in Luke, Luke eleven sixteen earlier this chapter. They were demanding a sign to test Jesus. Trying to sit on the fence is kind of what we saw there uh, about whether he was or wasn't who we said he was. Really, what's happening is people are coming along. People are happy to enjoy the benefits of being with Jesus, the healings, the exorcisms, the food. Love a bit of good food, me. We're going to do food at Alpha. Looking forward to the pizzas. That's a side note. But, you know, maybe, uh, maybe even they're willing to come for the good teaching but what they won't do is respond to the ministry of Jesus with repentance and change. And Jesus is saying that he's not there to give the crowd whatever it wants. He's there to do the work that God has given him. But they will get a sign. It's funny, he, he says, you know, this, this generation is not going to get a sign, but you will get a sign. <laughs> yeah, but uh, the, the work 
that he came to do will in fact be the ultimate sign. Now we might think, sign of Jonah, what's all that about? Uh, well, in the, in the retelling of this story that we get over in Matthew's Gospel, uh, we get a little bit more detail that's helpful for us here. Jesus says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights uh, in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. When Jesus dies, is buried and rises on the third day, that will be the great sign that anyone can look to in order to confirm who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. In fact, this sign, Jesus says, won't just confirm his identity, it will bring about a change in people who look on it. When people come to see the truth of the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, they will repent. And not only that, Jesus says that this sign will bring people to repentance just as Jonah's sign did in Nineveh. So the thrust here is that beholding the sign of Jesus leads us to be changed. Leads us to transformation and salvation. What this means for us on our side of the cross in history uh, and our side of the empty tomb in history, it's pretty clear, right? We need to be looking to the great sign. We need to be looking to Jesus, to the light of his gospel and experience in expressing the, the repentance that comes from that. So before we move on in our passage, let me ask you, do you seek to live in light of the gospel? You know, this, let, me, let, me, let me be very clear here. This isn't just a question for those who haven't believed the gospel ever before. It's not the same as asking, have you believed the gospel? That really is the first and most important moment of this application. Uh, so we should ask, have you believed? Have you trusted in Jesus for your salvation, for your eternal rescue? But if you have, then you're not done with the gospel. What this, uh, what this challenges Christians with is, are you increasingly believing the gospel for every area of your life? Does what I'm saying even make sense there to you? You know, sometimes we get so trained into the idea that the gospel is the gate by, by which we get into the kingdom that to say the gospel applies to every part of life can be a bit foreign sounding. You know, there are a lot of Christians in the world who miss this, who, which, is, which is crazy because it is so important. The gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done is not just for your eternal destiny. Don't hear me wrong, it is for your eternal destiny, but it's not just for it. It calls us to the change of repentance in everything. In every facet of our lives, we're called to let the truth of the mercy of God be seen in, in, in Jesus uh, changing us. This is, this is the way that the letters of the New Testament approach the Christian life. I don't know if you've run across this. If you've read your Bible, uh, you, you might have run into this. Um, so what happens is, is in the letters, we get an exposition of the good news. We get a gospel message at the start. They're almost all structured exactly like this. You get part one, the gospel, part two, the gospel applied. Um, they, they explain how it is to change us. They move into this, this ethical teaching, how the good news uh, changes our marriages. Um, because Jesus is the good husband, 
and, and, he, and he loves his bride, the church, and he gave himself up for her. And she is the good wife who submits to the unabating love of her husband. How it, how it changes our jobs. You know, how we are led to work hard in light of the selfless work of Jesus that has been done on our behalf. To work hard in light of the fact that our, the great work for us is already done. Leads us to work with contentment. Leads us to be able to rest from work because the great work is done as well. Takes us away from the hope of, of more money or more prestige. You know, it changes our relationship to government. Uh, how it changes our, it changes our parenting. Uh, it changes uh, the way that we are to operate as, as a church. That, that comes up a lot in the New Testament. When Jesus, our mighty saviour, is the head, it transforms the church. And so on and so forth. The gospel applies to every part of life. And so I ask you again, do you seek to live in light of the gospel in every part of your life? To do this, I'm convinced you need two things. Um, you need to seek out, and I'm speaking to Christians here, but obviously what you need first is the gospel. What you need first is to have believed and be saved. But in that context, you need to seek out time in which to seek gospel truth. In scripture, in prayer, with God, spend time with him. Time in which to look at the glory of Jesus and to, to seek to see how it applies to your life. I wonder if, if, if you do read the Bible regularly, whether you read it in that way, knowing that this is a thing that calls you to transformation, that shows you glory, that changes you. You know, critically, as a part of that, we need time to sit in repentance. We, time where we see our lives, see that we haven't lived up to what faith calls us to and to experience the grace that is there for that. Because uh, this is ongoing. We're always going to find imperfection in our life. We're always going to find uh, areas where we haven't lived in line with the gospel. But there's grace for that. But number two, you also need a community. Uh, so many times the New Testament calls us to live out the realities of the gospel as a people, as a body. In fact, all of the letters of the New Testament, ah, with, with a couple of exceptions, are, are corporate. They're written to churches, not to a person. Ignore Timothy, Philemon, Titus. Um, so we need a community. It's not just written for individuals. Paul sums up the ministry of the whole people of God uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, so, so the ministry that every Christian is called to live in, the serving that every Christian is called to live in, he sums it up as speaking the truth in love. We grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now, he means the gospel truth there. He clarifies that about a sentence later. But as we, uh, as we speak gospel truth into each other's lives, we become more like Jesus. We grow up into him. Ephesians 4.15, if anyone likes references, by the way. Um, and now, um, now moving into this next part of the text, Jesus gives this parable uh, that explains what he means and expands on it as well. He says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. I should say we are skimming through this pretty fast today. There's a lot more in here than we're going to hit. Um, so feel free to spend some time studying this. But basically what Jesus is saying there is, my light is here for all to see. 
Jesus' light, not John's light, Jesus' light. The light of the gospel is not hidden in this world. And then he goes on, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Now that reinforces what we've already seen, right? Um, Looking on the light of Jesus uh, changes us from the inside out. But, but now, now he adds something really vital to this. He takes it the extra step. Verse 36, this is. If, if then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. This is really important. In beholding Jesus, in living in the good news of the gospel, we are transformed. But then Jesus takes the extra step. That transformation isn't just for your benefit. Because when the light of Jesus changes our lives, we become like lamps, he says. Every part of you that the gospel has changed becomes an opportunity for the gospel to go out. It becomes a visible representation of how the power of the gospel changes a person's life and how it powerfully has changed you, how it's done that. Beholding the light of Jesus leads us to be lights to the world. This is what, it, what is missing from the idea of evangelism and mission in a lot of the church. Um, because it's something that you have... Uh, Sorry, my words fell apart just now. Um, Perhaps it's something that that you've missed too. It's something that I missed for a long time. We can often live in this despair that people don't ask us about our faith. Gospel opportunities don't seem to come up. And certainly that's a, a thing we need to pray for. Don't hear me wrong here. We need to depend on God for that. But can you see how if the gospel isn't being applied to every part of our lives, then 95% of the gospel opportunities fall out the window. They don't happen because we are not living in the change that brings them about. You know, the, the most powerful gospel conversations, in my experience, don't usually start with, how can I be saved? They get there. It's a good question. Don't get me wrong. People won't typically ask you that straight out, though. What people will say if you take the time to to get to know people who don't know Jesus and and get to be friends, get to be in community with them, what they'll say is things like, well, it's hard being a parent. (laughs) Or I don't like my job. Or being married sucks. Am I right? Don't say yes. That's what I'm saying that someone says. Um, (laughs) Or being single sucks. Am I right? Also, don't say yes. You know, when you get to know people, you run into the inevitable fact that they struggle in their lives. If, if they look perfect, then you just haven't got close enough to see the details. When the gospel is the thing that defines, though, those areas of our lives, then that becomes a moment for gospel grace to come out. You know, for us to say... You know, it is hard being a parent. Jesus is what sustains me. 
I find that what gets me through the, the hard times at work is having a steady hope that doesn't change. Having someone who's completed the great work for me and has given me the status and the riches that I need. Marriage can be hard. Married people, you know that. Um, but it's the grace of Jesus and the, and the confession and forgiveness and the repentance that he leads me to that sustains my marriage, leads us to. It's his self-giving love that enables me to keep on giving myself even on the days where I don't feel like it. Being single can be really hard. But I found that when I valued my saviour more than my relationship status, I found peace even in the struggle. And of course it's still a struggle. But peace amidst that. Do you see that the, the light wouldn't shine through if you hadn't first experienced it? If it hadn't first changed you in that area? Now, uh, we're going we're to keep on rolling because our passage now moves on to this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees and the lawyers, uh, uh, that is, the experts in Jewish law. Um, and we're going to skim this a bit for the sake of time, but what we see here is the alternative to having the light of Jesus in your life. What happens when a person tries to be light without the light? What happens when we try to live a good life without the goodness of Jesus. And what we see is that just striving for change on the outside is useless. So Jesus is invited into the house of this Pharisee. We don't get his name. Uh, this isn't the, the first time this has happened in this gospel. Um, and you can, you can understand that it might have been a bit of a status play for the Pharisee when Jesus has all of these tens of thousands of followers coming along and, and he goes, hey, Jesus, come and sit at my table. <laughs> Uh, to, but to, you know, have someone famous, have the famous teacher come over. But, but if that is the case, then, then it's tempered now by the, by the growing kind of enmity between Jesus and the Pharisees, uh, and in, indeed, indeed, between Jesus and the religious establishment. No sooner has Jesus come in than the situation turns to tension. Jesus doesn't ritually wash before eating. In the Pharisees' book, that made him ritually unclean, uh, spiritually distant from God, I suppose you might call it. It's not just that he had dirt on his hands. What Jesus did with his hands distanced him from God in their eyes. But Jesus throws this gross, gross accusation at the Pharisee here. He says that they wash the outside of the dish, but inside they are full of greed and wickedness. Um, we use a dishwasher at home. Judge me however you will for, for that. I'm secure in my salvation. Um, <laughs> but it provides a, a graphic example every now and then of what he's talking about here. Um, sometimes when you stack the bowls in it, just the bowls, it doesn't happen with anything else. I don't know how this operates. Um, it must be their shape. But uh, it doesn't seem, yeah, it doesn't seem to happen elsewhere. But, but um, I think it's how we stack. Never mind, that's not the point. <laughs> Um, they, they'll come out of the dishwasher sparkling on the outside. So beautiful. And the outside's the side that, that faces up. And so you look at them and you go, man, that's a good lot of dishes. Um, 
uh, and so and but yeah, they look great. But then then you reach down and you take one out, and inside you realise that something has gone terribly wrong. A piece of pasta is still attached to the bowl. Porridge is smeared around the inside. Pesto sauce is still so present that you can smell the deliciousness mixed with the detergent. Um, and, and you resign yourself to the terrible truth in that moment, by the way. I'm going to have to wash these by hand. Anyway, anyway, sorry, that's by the by. But, but it's the sort of image that Jesus is getting at here, right? It's, it's crazy. Um, in, but in, and in his image, it's intentional. It's not because the dishwasher had a problem. It's a trick, an, an attempt to hide what is inside the life of a person by, by hiding it with an attractive moral exterior. You see, the Pharisees practiced looking holy, is, is the easiest way to say it. But Jesus condemns them because it's all appearances. In fact, he condemns them for their, their vertical and horizontal relationships here. He says, he says they neglect justice and the love of God. Justice and the love of God. Their concern is with how righteous they look. And they're not interested in giving justice to those in need. They're not interested in feeding the poor or in reaching the lost or in loving their neighbour. They're interested in whether you wash your hands. I'm not making a COVID comment there. But the root of it, the root of that problem is that they don't love God. The love of God is what changes our relationships with others. Isn't that what we've just seen in the earlier part of this? And now a lawyer speaks up and this guy, uh, <laughs> he does somewhat seem to be asking for it. Uh, he says, hey, Jesus, don't you realize you're insulting us lawyers too? The answer is yes. <laughs> Thing is, Jesus does realize, and he lays into this guy a bit in, in a way. He lays into the lawyers. They too were acting it out. They wanted people to think of them as holy, as good, but they missed the point. The law can't save you. No one's perfect, and when we try to be, we become hypocrites. We, we act. The word Jesus uses there for hypocrisy uh, is the one that was used in the day to describe actors in, in the Greco-Roman theatre um, who went out on stage and played a part behind a mask. But it wasn't the reality of the person. It was just a role. And there's this moment of real tension between Jesus and the Pharisees and the lawyers here. And, and we'll see that continue to escalate in the later parts of, of the story. But, but let's not miss the point. The point of this latter part, if you boil it down, is that what Jesus says in, in chapter 12, verse 1 to 2, beware of hypocrisy. That's worth saying. He's not speaking then to the Pharisees. He turns to his disciples and he says, beware of hypocrisy, because he knows it's not just a danger for them, it's a danger for us. Hypocrisy is useless. Hypocrisy hides sin and pretends to have it together. But Jesus reminds us it's going to come to light. You know, really, really, that system only works if there is no God and no judgment and no heaven and no hell. And, and, and you know, what are we doing if that's the case? What's the point if there is no God? If there is a God, why are we hiding? Jesus reminds us there's a day coming when the things that are hidden will be revealed, 
when every hidden sin will be laid bare. Guys, if we, if we are honest, this is something we've seen in the church too much. How often do we see, a, a, for instance, this might sound familiar, a promising church leader who teaches the right words, who seems to have it all together and be a, a leader in righteous living, only for, for him to fall because he has been living unrepentantly in some area of sin, right? Too often. I can, I can think of numerous examples, sadly. It's not just the leaders. We, we struggle with sin, and so often our tendency can be to go back to the Garden of Eden, right, and, and do what they did, hide. Hide our sin when we could be called out on it, conceal our sin, deny our sin even. We need to hear what Jesus has said. The gospel leads us to repentance, to repentant living. The gospel leads us to seek out accountability. The gospel light leads us to become lights to the world as we are changed. You know, as we look at the goodness of Jesus, we are led to set aside the mask of hypocrisy and actually deal with sin actually be transformed by his goodness and so to actually be light to the world we're going to we're going to transition now into a time of communion um, we're going to um, drink a little bit of juice and eat a little bit of bread um, but the juice and the bread in a way aren't what's important um, let me let me actually just contradict that and say if you want to get to it though there's three stations. Please try not to crowd them for the sake of restrictions. Um, but, but the juice and the bread remind us that his blood was poured out for us, that his body was broken for us. And by that, all of our sin is dealt with. All of our brokenness is dealt with. So let, let's, let's take this as a moment to, to practice what we're preaching here, to, to act in repentance. Take a bit of time to, to examine your own life, to see where in this last week you've, you've fallen short of the gospel and where God's grace can pour over you and where you can be led to be transformed and, and deal with that with God in prayer. And then as you're ready, um, head up and take some juice and bread and remember he has dealt with it fully. Would you pray with me? Jesus, um, we want to come before you in, in a heart of corporate confession right now. That we, uh, we've sinned, we've turned from you. Um, and there are so many areas of our lives where we still need to be led in the transformation of the gospel. And yet, Lord, we, we don't say that, what a joy, we don't say that crushed or defeated because you've dealt with it. You've dealt with my brokenness. At that cross, you carried it all. And as I look to it, the reality of that works out in my life. Lord, what a, what a marvelous grace from you that you change your people. You don't leave us in our brokenness. So Lord, we confess we, we are a people in need of you. Yeah, maybe there are those here who have never accepted you and so 
ask that you would lead them to repentance and faith now, but lead us all to it. Lead us all to be changed. Lead us all to the cross of Christ and the empty tomb by which we're saved. And transform our lives, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.